believers are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. We are dead to sin and alive to Christ. We are not enslaved by our sinful nature. We choose whether we yield to ourselves or to fulfill our sinful desires or to live for Jesus for his glory. We are able always to choose to resist our sinful nature and to live for Christ. The believer in Jesus Christ does not ever have to live in sin, but can and should live in victory over their sin. Now, these statements are all based on biblical truths. And we could do a fairly long Bible study just on the various places that talk about the believer's victory over sin and the flesh. Despite what the Bible says, many believers do not live this way. Many believers do not experience this sort of victory. Instead of living as victors in Christ, we live as victims of our sinful nature. Let me give you some characteristics of a person that is a victim to his sinful nature. Victims often feel powerless to resist their sinful desires. Victims often feel great remorse for giving in to their sinful desires, but give in anyway. Victims often feel hopeless about being free from their sinful desires. Victims often deal with terrible consequences that come from giving in to their sinful desires. And victims often, and I might even say usually, lay the blame for their lives and the things that are going on in their lives to anything and everything other than themselves. Now, can anyone relate to any of these things? Can anyone ever feel this way in their lives? Now, there are a lot of people in Scripture that, that fall into the category of what I'm calling a victim to their sinful nature. But I think the greatest example of this is the man from the Old Testament, Samson. In a lot of ways, Samson is a walking contradiction. For instance, he is physically strong and he is a mighty warrior. We might call him the, the Rambo of the Bible. Samson did all kinds of amazing feats physically. In one battle, he killed a thousand bad guys with the jawbone of a donkey. Once, when trapped in a city, he simply lifted the gates off the hinges and carried the gates up the hill. <clears throat> he was a massively strong Muldoon. Yet at the same time, Samson was incredibly spiritually weak. Right? If physically he was the Rambo of the Bible, then spiritually, well, he was the Justin Bieber of the Bible. I mean, he was puny. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Samson, you know that despite his great physical strength, his spiritual weaknesses destroyed his life. Physically, Samson was a victor, but spiritually, Samson was a victim. Now, chances are we can all relate to Samson in one way or another. I feel confident in saying that none of us are quite as victorious as we'd like to be. We're all aware of our temptations and failure. We know what it is to struggle against our sinful nature, but still lose. We know the shame and the guilt, the frustration and the discouragement that come from this failure. And I venture to say that every person in here has seen or heard somebody destroyed by a weakness very similar to their own. And in a cold sweat, pray, dear Lord, please don't let that ever be me. The question we want answered is, can that be avoided? I mean, is it inevitable that we must always live as victims to our sinful nature? Is it inevitable that at some point we're going to destroy our families? 
Is it inevitable that at some point we are going to bring shame to the name of Jesus Christ? Must we destroy our relationship with God? Must we let our sinful nature conquer us to the point that we are left desolate and humiliated? Well, the answer to all these questions is no. No, it's not necessary. It is possible for us to be victors over our sinful nature instead of being victims to our sinful nature. And today what we're going to do is to survey the life of Samson to learn from his mistakes. Because what we want to do is we want to learn what made him a victim so that we can go, out, go ahead and do the opposite and become victors in this area. And we're going to be in Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16. But it's not as long as it sounds. Um, go ahead and open your Bible to Judges 13. And we're not going to stand because we're not going to read any one place. But as you're looking for that, let me go ahead and lead us in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we love you today. God, you are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Father, we look at an example today of a God who seemingly had everything. And yet, despite all that he had, Lord, he was such a, well, such a terrible failure. And Lord, all of us, if we're honest, can see ourselves in Samson. We wrestle as he did. We lose as he did. But God, it doesn't have to be that way. It is possible for us to overcome. It is possible for us to live in victory. It is possible for us to experience, Lord, just freedom from, uh, from our, our sinful nature. And so we ask you today to open our hearts as we look at your word, to give us clarity. And, and Father, just give us ears to hear that we would take this and we would apply it to our lives. Fill me with your spirit and give me clarity of thought and, and clarity of speech that I'd not be a hindrance in any way. But Lord, I, I could speak your words and I could speak them in your way. That, God, you would use them to strengthen and encourage and help your people. That we would all live the lives that you have wanted us to live. That we could be bright lights that shine in an ever-darkening world that point people to Jesus. We ask this in his name, for his sake. Amen. We're introduced to Samson in chapter 13. Israel is once again in bondage. They're having problems. Um, and there was a family... In Israel that had no children. And an angel of the Lord comes to them in verse 3. To the wife and says indeed now you're barren and have no children. But you shall conceive and bear, for, bear a son. Therefore please be careful not to drink the wine or any similar drink. Or to eat anything unclean. For behold you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. The child shall be a Nazarite to God from his womb. From the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. If anyone was ever set up for victory, it would be Samson. I mean, everything about his life just screamed blessed. He was miraculously given to this family by God. He was special in that he was going to be consecrated or, or committed to the Lord uh, from a baby. From all appearances, there's nothing to indicate his family was anything but godly, devoted Jews. They loved the Lord. They, they apparently, they tried to raise him right to, to follow the Lord and to do the will of the Lord. And then, of course, there's Samson's supernatural strength. God-given strength to do 
incredible feats. If anyone, if anyone should have been a victor, it should have been Samson. Yet despite all that Samson had going for him, all the good that God had placed in his life, all of the things that were going in his direction, Samson still was a victim of his sinful nature and was ultimately defeated by it in a terrible way. How do we, how do we not follow in his footsteps? What can we do so that we learn to be different than Samson? As I studied Samson's life, I noticed that, that victors often have what victims lack. Let me give an example. Victims lack self-control. But self-control is basically the ability to do what you're supposed to do even when you don't want to. All of us at various times have conflicting desires. There is the desire to do what we know we ought to do, but then there is another desire to do something entirely different. What makes the difference is self-control. Through self-control, we can choose to do what we ought to do even when we don't want to. And Samson, well, Samson had, had none. Now, all of us, I think, what makes self-control difficult is that self-control can be in a various, many areas of our life by a lack of self-control. It is, I mean, you think about all the areas of our life that we have to make right choices on. And in any of those areas, we can lack self-control and end up being victims of our sinful nature. It could be in our spending. It could be in the way we manage time. It could be in the way that we talk. It could be with sexual desires. It could be with any number of things. But a lack of self-control is one of the things that characterizes the victim. They cannot choose to do what's right. Or they don't choose to do what's right. Because they really, really want to do what's wrong. This is a characteristic of Samson's life. And, and if you've read the story of Samson, you know that with Samson, the issue largely revolved around women. Samson was, I guess, a ladies' man. That was where his lack of self-control was. In three chapters of his life, there are three different women that are a part of his life. He, he did not care about much of anything other than what pleased him. And I want us to look at the first one. Look at chapter 14. It says, Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman of Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. And then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren? Or among all my people that, that you must go to get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. Now, in order to really understand what's going on here, understand that the law that God had given to his people, part of the covenant that they had taken, was that Jewish men would not take pagan wives. And that 
A dad and a mom would not give their Jewish daughter to a pagan man to be his wife. It wasn't a, a racial thing. It was a religious thing. They were not to intermarry religiously. A person who was committed to a Jew or was a committed Jew was not to marry someone that worshipped Baal. The reasoning behind it was that it would be a snare to them and draw them away from the Lord to worship this false god. This was a law. This was a rule. Samson knew the rule. He was raised to know the rule. But he went out and he saw a Philistine. He saw a pagan woman. And when he saw her, apparently she was good looking and he liked her. And so he said to his mom and dad, go negotiate the situation so that I can be married to her. Now, his mom and dad are godly people. They remind him of what the Bible says. Right? And that's kind of what they're saying with, isn't there someone among our own people that you can go and see? And Samson responds and he basically says, I, I, don't, I don't care. I don't care what God has said. I like her. I want her. She pleases me. Right? That is a, a lack of self Control. And here's what I think when it comes to, to this issue. I think we're a lot like Samson. Right? Because we all have something we're tempted by. Now, we're probably tempted in different ways and by different things. But every person, unless you're Jesus, has a temptation that we are most prone to succumbing to. It may be sexual sin. But it may be gossip, or it may be pride, or it may be any number of other things. But there is something that, bought, that, that you are most swayed by, that you give into far more often than you do in other areas. And here's where I say we're like Samson. We make the same sort of choice he did. Because let me ask you a question. Think for a second about what it is that you give into the most. Do you know what God has said about that particular issue? Do, do you know what God has said about whether or not you should take part in that? Do you know what God has said about doing it or, or not doing it? I'm going to go out on a limb and say the answer is yes. Yes, we do. See, the problem isn't a lack of knowledge problem is a lack of self-control. Now, we wouldn't, we wouldn't say like Samson says. Not, not usually. We wouldn't say, I don't care. I like this. It pleases me. But that's what we do. That's what happens in our life. And so we fall victim to our sinful nature and we are overcome by it. Victims lack self-control. Victims lack the ability to say no to something that they want to do, even when they know saying no is the right thing to do. That is in contrast with victors who discipline their desires. Victors discipline their desires. And that requires self-control. And self-control is hard. I think I mentioned this last week. We are an indulgent culture. We are a culture 
that is taught we ought to give in to anything that we want to. That no one can ever tell us that our desires are wrong. That no one can tell us how we fulfill those desires is wrong. And and, and in a culture that tells us that we ought to fulfill our desires however, whenever, and as often as we want. And the culture we live in makes self-control difficult. Self-control is necessary nonetheless if we want to be victors over our sinful nature. Because without self-control, we can't discipline our desires. Look at what the Bible says. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Now, no rule over his own spirit, in other translations it says, has no self-control. And that's what it means. Now, to really understand the force of this verse, we've got to understand what it's saying. A city without walls in ancient times was pretty helpless. Walls were the, the first line of defense. But there, there weren't a lot of large countries. There were a lot of city-states. So, Gaiman would be a city-state all to its own, and the mayor would be like the king of Gaiman. And we would have walls set up around the city to protect us from being attacked by the evil people in Goodwill who wanted our stuff and wanted to conquer so they could have more land for themselves. And, and the walls were the first thing that would defend against the invaders from Goodwill, that kept them from coming in and taking our stuff and killing us and, and taking our women and our children to be their slaves. But without walls, well, that city was ready for attack at any time. Because you could have a large group of invaders who could come by night and sneak in and, and kill people in their sleep when there were no walls to keep them out. And, and without walls, the city-state was just waiting on the first person to muster up courage and people to attack. And they would likely be conquered. And the proverb writer compares us without self-control to that city. We are sitting ducks. And we are just waiting on sin to come and conquer us. Because without self-control, we'll never say no to any desire. But the only reason we say no without self-control is simply because we don't want to. Not because it's difficult. Self-control enables us to choose to do the right thing, even when we really, really want to do the wrong thing. Self-control is a, a hard thing to have. But here's the kind of a great thing about this. It's not up to us alone to knuckle it all under. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. But as believers in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within us. And He will supernaturally enable us to have self-control. We, and this is I guess what makes it even harder... Right? Because an unbeliever can say, I can't help it. And it's legitimately true in a lot of ways. They are slaves to their sinful nature. The believer in Jesus Christ cannot say, I can't help it. Because God works to provide a way out of the temptation if we will have the self-control to look for it and then take it. And not only that, but God works in us to give us the self-control to choose to do what's right. I think that, that idea, it's kind of a, a two-edged sword. On the one hand, that's convicting. 
Because I have to take full responsibility for everything I do. Like, if I blow up and act ugly, I can't say it wasn't my fault because it was. If I do something I shouldn't do, I can't say it's not my fault because it was. That's tough. At the same time, it's encouraging to know that that I can. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I can choose what is right. I can do what God wants to me, wants me to do. I can find that way out. I can take that way out. I can exercise self-control. See, the difference between a victim and a victor isn't that one has sinful temptations and the other doesn't. Because we all suffer from sinful temptations. The difference between the victor and the victim is that the victor disciplines his or her desires and exercises self-control to conquer them. Secondly, victims lack restraint. Victims lack restraint. To say that Samson was emotionally unstable would be, well, an understatement. Samson could go from what appears to be happy, 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 to violent, violent, violent in just a split second. If Samson felt wrong, he got mad. And if Samson got mad, well, it just did not bode well for anyone that was remotely near him that he felt might have wronged him. Let me, let me give an example. Look at chapter 14 and verse 14. Well, look at verse 13. Well, look at verse 12. Samson is getting married to this Philistine woman. And they're having the wedding party. And he, he poses a riddle to the Philistines that are there. And he says, if you solve the riddle and explain it to me within seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said, pose your riddle. So he, he put the riddle forth in verse 14. And for three days, they couldn't explain it. And it made them mad. And so they went to his bride-to-be. And they said, apparently you invited us here to take our stuff. You get with your husband and you find out what the riddle means. Or we're going to burn you and your father with fire. So she goes to Samson and says, hey, bud, what's the deal with the riddle? What's it mean? And so he tells her. And she goes back and tells them. And then they come back and they've got kind of a a smart alecky answer, a way that they answer him to let him know. That they know the riddle. Samson realizes that she's told the story because it's a riddle he made up on his own. And nobody could have figured it out really, I guess. And so look at what he does in verse 19. Now it does say the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. And this will be important later on. But here's what he does. He goes down to Ashtalon and killed 30 men. And took their clothes. And gave the changes of clothes to those who explained the riddle. (laughs) I mean, think about that. On the way, I, I tried to visualize this week. Imagine getting those clothes, right? 30 blood-soaked garments. Here you go. Your cousin Fred won't be needing them anymore. You know, I mean, these were people they knew, right? So he gets mad, and he kills 30 people to pay the debt. It's pretty, 
pretty bad. That's pretty emotionally unstable. Well, he goes on in chapter 15. And he, he, he leaves. He's mad at the, the woman for telling his riddle. He goes off and pouts for a while. He comes back to pick up his bride. And the father tells him, hey, we, uh, we really thought you didn't want her anymore. So we let her marry the best man. So look at what he says in chapter 15 and verse 3. And Samson said, this time I shall be blameless. You know, because he was, maybe he's thinking now killing 30 people was a little much. I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then he went and caught 300 foxes. And he took torches, turned, uh, turned the foxes tail to tail and put the torches between their tails. And he would set the torches on fire. He let the foxes go, standing in the grain of the Philistines and burned up the the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards, the olive groves. So he gets mad again, and this time he destroys their livelihood. And he destroys the Philistines' ability to provide food for their families. And then, he goes on. It says in verse, look at verse 6. Philistine says, who has done this? They answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timite, because he has taken... His wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came and burned her and her father with fire. Well, they didn't escape that after all. Then Samson said to them, since you would do a thing like this, I'll surely take revenge on you. After that, I will cease. So he attacked them, hip and thigh, with great slaughter, and then went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock at Edom. But he, he then killed some more. And he killed and he killed and he killed. Always because he was angry. He gets angry. People die, something bad happens. Now, the Philistines at this time ruled over the Israelites. And so they were kind of accountable to the Philistines. And so the Philistines began to do what anyone in that case would do. They make life hard on the Israelites because Samson is one of them. So the, the, the Israelites go to Samson. And he says, look at what happens in verse 11. Well, they ask him in verse 10. Why have you come up against us? So they answered, we have come up to arrest Samson, do as him as he has done to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this that you have done? Right? What are you doing? Dude, you're making our lives hard. Why are you doing this? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. Do you know what he says? They started it. Right? He, he responds like a five-year-old. They did it first. I was just getting back at him. But in Samson's mind, the consequences that everybody else were facing didn't matter. The fact that he had killed 30 people for their clothes didn't matter. They did it first. They deserved what they got. Samson lacked restraint when it came to his anger. He, he completely gave over to it. Every time that it came. See, an, an outburst of anger like this, lacking restraint, is always a path to being defeated. Right? Because the Bible says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. I wanna, the idea of the anger giving a foothold to the devil. In the army, we would periodically do trench training. And in, when you take a trench line, what you do is you get a foothold. You pick a section of the trench and you do everything you can to get inside that section. And trenches run like here and then up and all around like that. And so you, you get a foothold. You 
clear a section of trench from corner to corner and you establish it, you guard the corners and then you get other people in it and you've gained a, a foothold in the trench. But the thing about a foothold is you didn't gain a foothold to stay in the foothold. There was only one reason you went to all the effort of getting a foothold in the trench. That was so you could take the entire trench. Now, your goal was to kill everybody in the trench or make them run away, one or the other. But to take the entire thing. Never content with a foothold. Anger, it gives Satan that foothold in our lives. But that foothold isn't all that he wants. And he's not content with just holding us here and, and having that one spot. Here's what he wants. He wants control of our entire lives. And that unrestrained anger, it gives him the foothold he needs to launch an attack on us, to hinder us, to hurt us. And anger's kind of like self-control. There's all kinds of things that can cause it. Anger can be justified or unjustified. It can be against perceived wrongs. It can be against any number of people that we think may have done us wrong. And the anger itself isn't so much the problem. It's what we do with that anger, how we deal with it. Unrestrained anger, well, now that's what victims do. But victors, victors restrain their reactions. See, it's not that victors don't get mad. They do. But they restrain how they react and how they respond in that anger. This is a necessary part of being a, a victor in Jesus Christ. Why is it so important that we restrain our anger? Well, let me give you some reasons. Unrestrained anger leads to sin. An angry man stirs up strife. And a furious man abounds in transgression. Unrestrained anger always leads to sin. And the idea of abounding, so it leads to a lot of sin. A person who, is, who has that flash of violent anger, outbursts of wrath. Right? They will sin in their anger, for sure. But... That's not usually, that's not the only place they're out of control in their life. When they're out of control in one area, very often they're out of control in other areas. But wait, you say, doesn't the Bible say be angry and sin not? It does. It does. The anger is not the sin. How we respond in that anger is where the sin comes in. And there is such a thing as a righteous anger. And there is a way to react in a righteous anger. But a righteous anger is just that. It's righteous. And its actions will be righteous as well. Meaning there are good, biblical, God-honoring reasons that we're mad. And our actions will be good, biblical, and God-honoring as well. Unrighteous anger always leads to sin. Unrestrained anger is the sign of a fool. Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. That verse is pretty self-explanatory. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man 
keeps it under control. And again, the issue is not the difference between a wise man and a fool. It's not that the wise man does not get angry, has emptied himself of all emotion. The difference is what they do in that anger. A person who at every type of anger flashes out and lets everyone know how they feel and why they feel wrong and what's going on and why they're angry. Listen, that person is a fool according to the Bible. It's not enough to say, well, that's my personality. I, just, I was just born with a short temper. If you've been born again, then you have a new nature and that has to take effect at some point. It's not enough to say, well, that's my temperament. It, it doesn't matter. The wise, the fool, are often distinguished in how they respond to their anger. Think about people you know who flash in anger. Who, when they're mad... You just hunker down and hope it's not you they're mad at. Let me ask you, do you characterize them yourself as a fool or as a wise person that you would seek advice from? Think, even without the Bible, we would know that a fool gives full vent to his anger. And then finally, unrestrained anger makes things worse. James writes, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The thing about this verse is how often we reverse it. Right? I mean, because aren't we swift to anger, swift to speak, slow to hear what people are actually saying or, or what's really going on? I mean, don't we tend to reverse this? And when we do, let me ask, when we do, does it just make the world a better place? Right, I mean, when, and think about just in your experience. Don't think of anybody but you. In your lifetime, as you have been swift to anger, swift to speak, swift and slow to hear, did your actions and your word in that swift anger fix the problem? Or did it in the end make it just way worse than it was before? See, that kind of anger... It never works the righteousness of God. It never produces righteousness. It never produces goodness. It never makes anything better. It always makes things worse. Now, you may feel better at the moment, but in the long term, your anger makes things worse. Anger is just a universal thing. I've known a few people... I don't guess got angry. I mean, I never saw it and I mean, just never really noticed it. But by and large, I think we're emotional people. And anger is an emotion that we experience at times. And that's fine. Anger is not the problem. How we respond in that anger, that, that's the issue. You think about a person who is filled with outbursts of wrath. Which Galatians says is a work of the flesh and a sin. Do those people in your mind, do they qualify as victors in the spiritual world or victims to their sinful nature? Again, we wouldn't need the Bible to say that. We just know. Somebody like that is a victim. They, they never get over it. They, they just don't stop. 
The difference between a victor and a victim isn't that one gets angry and the other does not. The difference is that a victor restrains their responses and doesn't flash out in anger. And then the final one is that victims lack consistency. Samson, we, we saw that he was devoted to the Lord from birth. He was going to be a Nazarite from birth. They were not, his mother was not to eat or drink wine or any of the fruit of the vine. She was not to cut his hair. He would be a Nazarite from birth. That was a particular type of consecration that the law allowed for. You look at chapter 16 and verse 17, Samson mentions that no razor has come upon his head for he's been a Nazarite from his mother's womb. And if you look at those two together, here's what you think. Here's what you see. One, God's plan for Samson was to be specifically devoted to him. And at some point in Samson's life, he accepted that responsibility. But at some point in Samson's life, he devoted himself to the Lord. He committed himself to the Nazarite vow. Right? He was told at some point, God wants you to be a Nazarite devoted to him. Don't shave your head. Don't eat these kind of foods. And at some point, Samson said, okay, I'm going to be what God wants me to be. And he set out to be devoted to the Lord. But his devotion to the Lord was inconsistent at best. Several times in in Samson's life, He knew what God wanted to do, but he chose to do something else and said, we saw how he did that with the the Philistine woman. In in one of the other chapters, he goes and he sleeps with a prostitute. Another example is in chapter 14. Uh, Look at chapter 14 and verse 8. After some time, he returned to get her, his wife, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion that he had killed. Behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. They took some with his hands, and he went along eating. Now, part of the Nazarite vow was that you didn't touch dead things. But, I mean, you, you didn't, even if you were, sent, even like, you couldn't go to a funeral. You weren't supposed to take part in helping prepare a body for a funeral. Uh, if you were next to someone and they died suddenly, it defiled you. This was a part of the vow. Samson not only like touched it, but he ate something out of it. Right? So it's not only just gross, it's a violation of the, the vow that he made to God that he wouldn't do that. Right? And, and it wasn't like he was about to starve to death and he came across some honey. No, that wasn't the issue. The issue was he knew what God said, but in the end he, he wanted this honey more. It went back to his lack of self-control. It goes back to the fact that in the end, he just really wasn't that committed to the Lord. Samson's commitment to God was lukewarm at best. I think probably we see it best in the story that's most famous for Samson. Turn to Judges chapter 16. The story of Samson and Delilah is probably one of the more famous stories There is. Chapter 16, verse 3, verse 4. He saw a woman whose name was Delilah, and he was in love with her. Once again, Samson's in love with a Philistine. 
And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, and we may bind him and afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So basically they say, find out what makes him strong, so that we can make him weak and hurt him. We'll give you, one guy said about $25,000. Pretty fair sum of money. So she said, okay. She decides to do it. Now, she sets out, and again, I, it's important to know she knew what was going to happen. But it wasn't like, hey, we're just curious. Can you find out and tell us? No, we're going to find out. We're going to do it. And we're going to hurt him. I'm okay with that for $25,000. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. I'm just going to say for me, the question alone would have set off warning bells in my mind. Right? Why do you want to know how to weaken me and afflict me, lady? I'm not sure I'm getting what's going on here. How is this going to help our marriage at all? How is this going to help our relationship? But our hero, our hero's not that sharp. It doesn't set off any warning bells with him. And so he tells her a story. They bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, then I shall become weak and like any other man. Any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound him with them. Now men were lying in wait. With her in the room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. All right, so again, get the picture. How can somebody how could somebody make you weak and hurt you? Oh well, if you were to tie me up like this, it would buy, it would hurt me. Then you go to sleep and you wake up, and there's Philistines in the room running at you, and what you told one person in the whole world would weaken you has been done to you. Again, warning bells should be going, woo, 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 problem, problem, danger, Will Robinson, danger. But no, not for Samson. He doesn't think anything in the world about it. It was just a coincidence. So, it goes on. It happens again. This, this becomes a pattern with Samson. Over and over again. Verse 10, Delilah said to Samson, you've mocked me and told me lies. <laughs> Good, I did. I'm glad too. Now please tell me what... What can be done that we can bind you with? So he said, they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used. I should become weak like any other. And again, he goes to sleep. He wakes up bound with new ropes with Philistines charging at him. Wakes up. He fights them off, sends them on their way. Delilah tells him, you're just making fun of me. You're, you're not really love me. If you love me, you would tell me the truth. Samson doesn't make the connection. And he tells her again. Something else. But notice this time he's getting a little closer. So she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom. Or, I'm sorry, verse 13. Uh, if, if you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom. So she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom. Said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled the batten and the web from the loom, and fought them off again. And so Samson again doesn't catch on. So she, she goes on and finds that wants to know, wants to know. Verse 16, I like how it says the last. She pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. Right. Let me just say, kind of an aside, don't have anything to do with the message. Right. Don't press somebody until you vex their soul to death. Stop. Anyway, so he told her all his heart. No razor has ever come upon my head. I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb, 
If I'm shaven, my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak like any other man. But he, he tells her. Now, in all reality, his hair didn't make him strong. It was his commitment to God that made him strong. The hair was just a symbol of that. The hair was, was, was a symbol of the fact that he was different than other people. He, above all people, was, had devoted his life to serve the Lord. And what he did was he began to make little compromises. A little here and a little there. I mean, because think about up to this point some of the things that he's done. Right? I mean, he ate honey out of a deadline. I mean, gross. Yeah. Unsanitary. Sure. Big deal in the big scheme of things. Ah, come on. Just a little thing. But every small compromise leads him closer, closer to the big one. Leads him closer to the one that will eventually bring him down. Verse 18, when Delilah saw, he told her all his heart. She sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, come up once more. He's told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistine came up to her and brought her money in her hand. And then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep. He said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord departed from him. I'm going to tell you what I think. I don't think Samson was really slow. I don't think he thought it would ever happen to him. But the issue with Samson wasn't that he didn't connect the dots. I mean, I think he did. I think Samson was proud. Samson thought, I'm Samson. I tore a lion apart with my bare hands. I killed a thousand dudes with the jawbone of a donkey. I lifted the gates of a city up and walked off. What will they do to me? And his little compromises led to a terrible, terrible downfall. And there's things that we learn. I think we learn a couple of things. I think we learn one that nobody ever sets out to destroy their life. I mean, it's pretty safe to say Samson says in verse 21, they took him and they put out his eyes. And they brought him down to Gaza and they bound him with bronze fetter and he became a grinder in the prison. I mean, it's safe to say Samson's goal in life wasn't someday I'm going to be captured and have my eyes gouged out and become a slave for the Philistines. No, he didn't set out to destroy his life and no one else does either. At the same time, it didn't happen all at once. It happened little by little. One small compromise added to another small compromise added to another small compromise till he ended up in the place where he was. Nobody ever sets out to become an alcoholic. It happens gradually. Nobody ever sets out to destroy their marriage. It just happens gradually. Nobody ever sets out to publicly humiliate themselves. It just happens gradually. Nobody ever sets out to do any of the things that bring such dire consequences in their lives. But it happens gradually. And Samson found himself after that blind and bound and grinding. And it's kind of a terrible thought to think of what his life had become. Because verse... Like verse 20, that last part is maybe one of the saddest verses ever. He didn't know the Lord left him. 
And in Samson's mind, it did just all of a sudden happen. In Samson's mind, suddenly God let him down. Where is God? Why did God do this? He didn't realize he had gotten that far away. And he didn't realize it until he was blind and bound, grinding away. Let me ask you, do you feel blind to what God wants to do in your life? Do you feel blind to God's work in your life? Do you feel blind to to just God's presence in your life? Do you feel bound, trapped, slaved? Does your life become a grind that you just have to deal with day by day? If you can just get through this day, maybe tomorrow will be better. Well, if you answered yes to those questions, let me ask you again. Does that sound like the abundant life that Jesus said he came to give? It doesn't, does it? The thing is, we we don't have to live this way. This isn't what God planned for Samson. This isn't what God plans for us. But if we lack consistency in our commitment to Jesus, it's exactly where we'll end up. So what do victors, victors do differently? Victors have a determined devotion. Victors are determined... To be devoted to God no matter what. Now we, we convince ourselves that sort of a casual commitment, an inconsistent commitment is okay. And I could tell you all the reasons that it's not. But I want to show you what Jesus thinks about an inconsistent commitment. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were hot or cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. There you go. How does Jesus think about an inconsistent commitment? That's what he thinks right there. Makes him want to puke. Now, that's rough. That's Jesus' words. That's not mine. See, Jesus expects, demands, and deserves a determined devotion. Just a few verses earlier. Jesus sent a letter to a church that was suffering terrible persecution for his name. And here's what he told them. It's bad. It's going to get worse. Be faithful unto death. (laughs) They're going to kill you for my name. But if they haul you up and if they say deny Jesus and live, you choose death over life. Be faithful to me. That's what Jesus expects. That's what Jesus demands. That's what Jesus deserves. But why? Because, I mean, let's face it. Be faithful unto death. That's pretty extreme, right? Why does Jesus expect and deserve and demand all of that? Well, it's because of who he is. Jesus isn't just a a carpenter from Galilee. He, he, He isn't just a guy that taught some good things. He isn't just somebody that that did a few miracles. Jesus is God in the flesh. I mean, in John chapter 12, we're reminded that when Isaiah saw the vision of God in all of his glory in Isaiah 6, that it was Jesus that he was seeing. John, Colossians, and Hebrews all remind us that Jesus is the one who created all things. 
So the great and the glorious creator of the universe came down, cast off his glory and came down to earth, lived among us, lived a a sinless life, did amazing miracles, taught tremendous things. And in response to all of the good that he did, he was betrayed by one of his own. He was mocked and spit upon, beaten and crucified and died. But the cross was not a surprise. The cross was the point of it all. See, Jesus didn't come to be an example. Jesus didn't just come to teach some neat things. He came to die on the cross for your sins and mine. And on the cross, he absorbed all of the wrath of all of God's anger against our sin. That we deserved what Jesus endured on the cross. But he willingly came for us and took that for us so that we might be spared and we might be saved. And then three days he rose victorious from the grave. And now he ever lives making intercession for us, wanting to save us, to give us his spirit and to give us eternal life. Why does Jesus expect and deserve and demand such a high level of devotion? Because he is unlike anything or anyone else this world has ever known. He has done what no one else could ever do and he offers us what no one else can even possibly give us. Jesus as the amazing Savior of the world, absolutely deserves that kind of devotion. And the difference between a victor and a victim isn't that one has everything all lined out and they're spiritually better. It's not that one is a spiritual superhero and the other is a regular Joe. The difference is that the victor has determined to be devoted to Jesus no matter what. Their devotion to Jesus is all the time, not some of the time. They are going to be devoted to Jesus. Now I want to give you a thought, one sentence, just a big idea, the message, a really more of a statement of faith to write down. I will not be a victim to my sinful desires. This, this isn't like some sort of positive self-help stuff. I think that's pretty nonsensical. This isn't positive confession to make you feel good. This is a statement based upon biblical truth. The fact that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. That we are not slaves. That we have been free and the Spirit of God lives within us. But it also states that I know that doesn't come to me automatically. I know that I won't just live free if I coast through life. I must make a determined decision. I will not be a slave. I will not be a victim to my sinful nature. This is the the statement of someone that's tired of the status quo. Someone who's tired of living far below the life Jesus wants them to live. Take this and make it yours. And as we close, there's, if you look at the bottom of the, the back of the bulletin, there's three questions. And I want you to think about these this week. What's out of control in my life? You have a temptation 
that is stronger than one temptation, at least, that is stronger than any other temptation you face. Is it out of control or have you disciplined that desire? What is it in your life that is running free without discipline? Secondly, what am I doing with my anger? Not do I get angry, not is my anger legitimate. What am I doing with it? Am I blowing up, having outbursts of wrath? Or am I restraining my responses? And then finally, how determined is my devotion? And I think maybe this might be the most important question. Because if we, this one should fuel all the others. Does your life show a determined devotion to Jesus or an inconsistent commitment? Are you hit and miss here and there in your devotion to Jesus? Or are you strong, constant, and steady? The difference between the victor and the victim is simply that one is determined to be devoted and the other is not. An inconsistent commitment will lead to small compromises that will eventually blow up in our face. Let's all stand as our musicians.